Well, good morning, church. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Third, and it is a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning. This summer, we've been working through a series on the Psalms of Ascent, and that series is called Songs for the Journey. Now, these Psalms, we have realized quickly, I don't know if it's been your experience, but it's been mine. These Psalms have met me exactly where I am. It meets us where we are right now. Like Israel, we are third church in diaspora. We are a displaced people. We're displaced physically. We're displaced emotionally. We're displaced spiritually. Whether it's the pandemic or racial injustice, the fact that we live in a fallen world has never been more clear to us. And these Psalms are, as Corey has said, our playlist. They are our tutors, our guides on this journey in this world. They teach us how to live and how to hope, how to survive, how to flourish as disciples of Jesus on this journey of faith. Today we're looking at Psalm 124, the rescue song. And here is my big idea for the day. The life of faith is filled with risks, but it is the rescue we experience that defines the journey. Eugene Peterson says this about one, Psalm 124. He says, Psalm 124 best describes the hazardous work of all discipleship, and it declares to us as God's people that our help always comes from God himself. This is a psalm of risk. It's a psalm also of rescue. It assumes suffering, catastrophe, disaster will be the backdrop of the life of faith. And with death and doom at their doorstep, what do these Israelites do? They sing a song of rescue, a song about the God who has delivered them before and will deliver them once again. Why? Why do they do this? Well, when we are in crisis, when death is at the door, we are overwhelmed. Literally, there are electrical circuits in our brains that become overloaded. And in that state, we are vulnerable. We can forget who we are, forget who God is. We can forget our story. This has been um, true in the Mondu household. Um, my sons are actively trying to forget that they are family. Uh, last week, Fisher screamed, I want biological proof that we're related. It's a rough time in our house. I don't know about you, but I, I've, ex I've experienced that, that, that overwhelmed feeling, that feeling of, of even desperation as your pastor in the last months. Th there have been days, sometimes weeks, marked by depression for me, times where I have felt totally lost. Uh, moments even of, oh, not moments, this happens a lot. What day is it? Is it, is it Thursday? It's Monday? Oh, I'm sorry. Like that, like that, like that has been the norm for me. I feel so disoriented. Um, the other day, Sue looked at me, and she just looked at all of me, and she goes, well, clearly you're in a really bad place. <laughs> and my response was, I'm great. You're in a bad place. And she goes, people that are in a good place, they don't respond like that. <laughs> I was not in a good place. And so, so what this psalm seeks to do it, it, it recognizes that in the midst of crisis, we become untethered, we can become lost. And this psalm, what it seeks to do in Israel's life, and what God wants to do in us this morning is to cultivate a redemptive memory 
Okay, it could cultivate a redemptive memory. It wants to remind us that our story, no matter how dangerous it is, takes place within the bigger story of God's great rescue. And there are three ways that this psalm teaches us that. First, it teaches us to remember God's favor, to remember God's grace, and to remember God's name. So let's jump into that together. First, we remember God's favor. Eugene Peterson quote again, Psalm 124, he says, is an instance of a community who digs deeply into their troubles and finds there the presence of the God who is on their side. For them to remember God's favor, they had to proclaim to themselves that fundamentally, at his core, God was for them. Verses one and two. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, in order for them to understand and remember God's favor, they had to believe and proclaim that fundamentally God was for him. Understand that, church, brothers and sisters, that if you are a part of God's family, if you are on this journey of discipleship, God is fundamentally for you. He is not against you. He is not neutral about you. He is more for you than anyone can ever be for you. Romans 8.31 puts it this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For us to remember God's favor on the journey, we have to claim and proclaim that God is for us. I think there's also something powerful about this passage and how, I love how Peterson says, uh, you see a community that digs deep into its trouble, into its pain. There's something powerful. I've experienced a freedom that comes by boldly naming the risks and the threats and the dangers of the journey. The Bible does not ask us to hide our troubles or our challenges or our desperations Psalm 124 immortalizes them, <laughs> it enshrines them in song, and then makes them vehicles for worship. We're not to hide those things. We dig deep into our troubles. Verses three through five, if the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed up alive. The flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. The raging waters consumed us. The psalmist uses two images, two images, Two symbolic experiences that represent very real threats to the life of God's people. First is a, a dragon or a beast. Verse two, swallowed up alive. Verse six, as we'll see in a minute, it would be prey to their teeth. And what uh, early um, ancient Near Eastern readers would have heard, they would have, they would have seen that as a, a manifestation of inescapable evil that cannot be stopped. That is how I remember, I was 19 years old when my mother died of cancer. That is how we as a family would describe that season. There's just sort of this unstoppable evil. We, we can't control it. It's happening and it's got its own course. The second uh, danger is the danger of being drowned by flood. Verse four, it swept us away. The torrent, the raging waters would have gone over us. Verses four and five. And this is the danger of sudden disaster. And in the midst of those very real threats on their journey, this community says, you think things are bad now? If God wasn't for us, things would be way worse. 
We would totally be wiped out. We would be dinner in that dragon's belly. We would have drowned. The psalm pushes us as followers of God to say that the life of faith, it is not the easy life. It is not the one that is simple, that is free from pain and trouble and suffering. To be a Christian is to be in the beast's mouth, to be in the tsunami's tide and somehow remember that God's favor is there. Even as we're sliding down its gullet, even as the waters rise above us. One of my best friends, um, Graham Davis, runs a ministry called Advanced Panama in, uh, in Panama. Uh, they develop leaders in the developing world. It's an incredible ministry. 15 years ago, Graham and his wife moved to the remote mountains of Panama <laughs> to help poor children there, the poorest of the poor. Uh, know that Jesus loves them uh, and to give them access and training to get to the best educational opportunities that their country offers. Their ministry is incredible and amazing. Three years ago, uh, one Sunday morning, while going to pick up some local teenage girls who lived far up the mountain, who were coming to church for the first time, uh, Graham's two-year-old daughter, Noelle, slipped out of the vehicle and got under the car. And when he left to go down the hill, he crushed her and she was killed instantly as they left. It, it, has, it is the most devastating thing uh, that I have ever uh, seen or witnessed someone go through. Graham was driving the car. I have never been near anything so painful. I've also never been close to a faith so beautiful. The night before Noelle's funeral here in the States, we were sitting around a fire and Graham named the, the dangers of discipleship to him, the risk of, of the journey of faith for his family, when he said, I, I think the cost of following Jesus is too great. If, if I hadn't come here, if I hadn't gone to Panama, my daughter would be alive. At Noelle's funeral, Graham stood up, and these are the first words that came out of his mouth. That's great. He said, you came. You showed up. You from all over the world are here and uh, you, you are given honor by the Lord. You give honor to your family and you give honor to us by being here. And even as our hearts break, even as our lives are being broken open, we need you to know that God is for us and he is with us. It is, is absolutely one of the holiest moments of my life to, to, to see firsthand a family dig so deep into such terrible loss and to find there the presence of a God who is on their side. Even in the midst of real threats, the first thing this psalm teaches us is that we have to remember God's favor. The second thing we need to remember is God's grace. Verses six and seven are the turn in the psalm. We as readers begin to realize that this psalm is actually not primarily about the risks of the journey, but rather the God who rescues. The near certain doom of earlier verses, the waves and the beast 
are now dramatically overturned by grace. God has enacted grace and rescue on Israel's behalf. Verse 6, blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. God didn't abandon us, they say. We were not devoured. Verses 7 and 6, the, the snare was broken. We have escaped. We are free. Grace has come. God has rescued us. One commentator that I read um, on this psalm said that this is a people who know that without God's grace, they would have no existence. I'm going to say that again. With, they were a people that knew without God's grace, they would have no existence. It's not the dragon's mouth. It's not the snares entrapment. It's not our risks or the dangers that, that most define us, but it is our rescue. It is the saving grace of God that leads us to say, you are blessed. 2 Timothy 4.18 puts it this way. It says, the Lord will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us into his heavenly kingdom. I want to take a moment, um, now that we see the full movement of both risk and rescue, to talk about something, to talk explicitly about something that is implicit in the text and in every psalm of ascent. And it's this. It's that God's rescue is, is not private. It's corporate. It's communal. And, and you see this in, in the very first verse where it says, let Israel now say, right? We're teaching a song to a group of people on the road. This psalm is, is a unique psalm within the whole Psalter. So usually a song of thanksgiving that follows the pattern that we've just read is almost always done in individual address. It's a single person addressing God directly, like David talking to God. But um, the psalmist has done something different here. This psalm follows perfectly the pattern of an individual address to God. But what this psalmist has done is he has put the song of, a, of one or of a few, at the most one household, on the lips of the entire community. These specific dangers, listen, church, these specific dangers, they were not experienced by everyone on the road to Jerusalem, just, just the few. But the community's own suffering and rescue became their own. Right? The, the risk and the rescue of this small group of people became the risk and rescue of the whole community. This is powerful because that's what it tells us, that our risk and our rescue is something that we bear in community. It's not something that we do on our own. And so the only way for us to fail in this journey of faith is to attempt to do it on your own. Disciples need other disciples. Now, I want to push a little bit deeper on this because uh, that's a great idea. That, that, that uh, there could be such solidarity and identification that, that someone else's song of rescue could become my song of rescue. But in order for the community to sing my song of rescue with me, I have to give the community the gift of my vulnerability. I have to take the risk of sharing my trouble, my pain, so that they can share in my salvation and my rescue. They cannot enter into my story if I will not share it with them. 
Now, I'm not saying that, that, that uh, you should vomit your darkest secrets on any stranger that comes across your life. That is not what I'm arguing. That's not what the psalm is arguing. But I am saying that every one of us should have at least a few people in our life who know absolutely everything about us. They know our song. They know our story. Every marriage, every couple should have at least another couple who knows everything about them, how they struggle, how they suffer. That's the gift of this psalm, is that our rescue isn't something that we experience on our own. It's corporate. We need each other. I have felt this so deeply (laughs) in the last few months. Um, Home worship has been such a gift to me personally. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like it has just been so great to dwell with other people in person and to, to feel the embodied love and presence of God. We need each other. And so, so it's, it's a really beautiful thing that the grace of God can show us that, that, um, that your story of rescue can become my story of rescue. Uh, even though it happened to you, it feels like it happened to me. And, and your story of rescue reminds me that God loves me and that his grace is powerful, even as I wait for my own redemption, if it hasn't come yet. If it happened to you, then it can happen to me. But, but we have to be clear, there's no solidarity in salvation without solidarity in suffering. We don't get to choose what part of the song that we want to sing, right? And so I also wonder if this psalm doesn't have something to teach us about the current racial injustice that our brothers and sisters of color are experiencing and naming in new ways in this season of American life. Think, think about this. The entire community of Israel has taken the song of a few and made it the song of many. Even though those on that journey had not experienced themselves, the floodwaters that were rising up to the point where they could not breathe, still, they made that particular song, that story, the story of their whole community. They elevated that voice. They elevated those cries of redemption and rescue so high that it became the sole song of the people of God. What, what if we, in particular, I want to speak to those of us here at Third as white Christians. What if we as white Christians of every age and generation asked God this question, how can I partner in the rescue song of my brothers and sisters? And if, if you refuse to ask that question, Christian, you have much work to do with Jesus. And that's why Corey and Ed and I are here. Like, we will do that work with you. But can you allow someone else's song, their threats, their dangers, their cries for rescue shape your journey of discipleship, your life of faith? We would would need to remember God's grace in new ways if we did that. So the first thing is that we remember God's favor. The second is we remember God's grace. Third, we remember God's name. Verse 8, the end of our psalm says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, I can't understate how important it is that the divine name of God is used many times, like a lot of times in this psalm, in just a few verses. And that word is Yahweh, often translated the Lord in the Psalms. And when you see that phrase, name of God, what you should think is not, not God's different kinds of names, like God, my provider. God. You should think the name of God is God's revealed character. It's his, it's his nature. It's who he is. So for instance, um, when the Ten Commandments are being given to Israel, Exodus 20, 
when God says, I am the Lord your God, the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who led you out of slavery in Egypt. That's the name of God. Like, that's my character. That's who I am. Like, I am in covenant with you. I'm in relationship with you. I deliver you. That's who I am. That's my character. That's my name. And so what the psalmist is saying is putting, he's putting the God's character, his, his nature at the center of our song. That's what's happening in verse eight. Our rescue, this community of faith says, will come from God's own self. I think it's very important to recognize rescue is not something that God does. It is who he is. Rescue is not what he does. Rescue is who he is. And I love that we have in just these eight verses, the, the, the core aspects of the triune God's work in the world. He is the creator redeemer. He's the rescuer. He's the maker of heaven and earth. That is who the God of the Bible is, the creator redeemer. He's the maker of heaven and earth. We had this, um, my wife loves to make furniture. If you've been to our house, it's like an art obstacle course. It's great. Um, it's beautiful. But um, the first piece I remember her really making for our family, we call it the Job chest. It's got these four panels on the front and each one of them takes a different uh, image and text from Job, and it's interpreted there on that panel. It's beautiful. It's also terrifying. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, it's from Job's, it's God's rebuke of Job. And so it's, it's uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, uh, how, were you the one that said to the oceans this far, no further? Um, it's, it's beautiful. And that, that piece of furniture has been a comfort to me over the years. It, it, it has helped me remember God's name, his character, who he is, in and out of the seasons of our life. The one who made all the creatures of the earth is the one who rescues you from the mouth of the beast. The one who, who told the waves this far and no further is also the one who rescues you from the flood. And the story of this God is the story of the Bible. And the best way to understand the Bible is to understand it like this. I'm gonna read from uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is a children's Bible. Maybe one of the best Bibles I've ever owned. I'm going to read from page 17. You see how destroyed this is. Um, we, we use it a lot in our house. It says this. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story, an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure, about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one that he loves. It's the most wonderful fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories tell this one big story, the story how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It's the story of rescue. And at the center of that story is Jesus. God has said, if you want to know my name, you want to know what I'm like, then you must look to my son. N.T. Wright says this, Jesus exploded into the life of the ancient world, not as a teacher of timeless truths, not as a great moral example, but as one whose life, death, and resurrection had set into course God's great rescue operation for the universe. And so in the midst of the real threats, dangers, struggles of your discipleship, of your journey, what you think of the name of God, what you think of his character can have incredible impact upon you.
And so the question is, how, how do you see Jesus? <laughs> how do you see him? What is his character to you? We have a gift um, in the Bible that we get to see the end of the story. We get to see the end of the story long before we live it. And so I, I want to see Jesus. And I think this psalm wants us to see Jesus. The way that Bruce Thielman sees Jesus. Jesus as the risen and ruling Christ. I want to see Jesus as the book of Revelation sees Jesus. Riding on a right horse whose vesture is dipped in blood. And on that vesture and on his thigh is a name so holy that no one can know it and live. And in the wake of his glory, first comes his enemies, those he has defeated, sin, death, principality, and powers behind them, robed also in white, are Moses with the multitudes he led out of Israel, Joshua and his warriors and legions that took the promised land, Gideon and his 300, Elijah and the 7,000 who would not kneel their knees to Baal. And behind them, Peter and the thousands that responded to him. And Paul, the thousands upon thousands that came to Christ through the gospel. And behind them, the lame, the blind, the sick, the poor, the young, the old. And then behind them, the new humanity in Christ, representatives of all the ethnos of the world. And they come tribe by tribe people by people, nation by nation, they come all to bow before Jesus, this one who wears crowns upon crowns, and they cry out, you are the king of kings, you are the Lord of lords. He, Jesus, is the Lord of life, the king of death, the savior of all things. He is the sovereign of your salvation, the image of of the invisible God, the author of your rescue and of mine. And we remember his name because it is at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is the God of rescue. And it is not the risks the real, they are real. It is not the real risks of the journey that define us. It is the one who rescues us that defines the journey. I'm going to say that again. It is not the risks, but the one who rescues you that defines your journey, Christian. I want to close um, by telling a little bit more of Graham's story, if that's okay. So... Um, a couple of years later, um, after Noelle's uh, funeral, I get a call from Graham. It's on WhatsApp because he's in South America. <laughs> um, only person that calls me on WhatsApp. Um, but I get a call from Graham, and it's uh, asking me to pray for him because uh, <laughs> he and Nicole are, are trying to have another baby. And I'm ashamed to say that like, my first response was, no, like, don't don't do it. Like, why would you open yourself up to such, uh, expose yourself to such pain and suffering again? And um, 
I, I said that to him. I was like, well, well, I'll pray for you, but why, why are you doing this? And I'll never forget what he said. Because death is not the end of our story. Because of the gospel, Derek. And it's not going to be the end of the story of this family. He remembered God's favor and God's grace and, and God's rescue. His, his nature in the midst of, of the most horrible things that he experienced. And earlier this year, Bellin Davis was born. Beautiful little girl. And she is a testimony to us and to me and to that family. She cultivates redemptive memory just by being in the world. That the life of faith is filled with risks, but it is the one who rescues us that defines our journey. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, the song of Psalm 124 is the song of rescue. It is the song of the cosmos. It is the song of the universe. We can't stop the song from happening. This is the arc of history, and it ends in rescue. And so I want to pray that you would help us as your people. Would you help your saints? Lord, would you give them the resources, the strength, the love, the power, the self-control that they need? To, to beat back the narratives that seek to tell them that God is not for them, that God does not have grace for them, and that God's character is not good. Would you, would you cultivate in them by the power of your spirit and by the gift of, of your discipling community a, a redemptive and holy memory? Help us to remember your favor, to remember your grace and to remember your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.